Hello, it's time for this week's episode of the Going Up, Going Down podcast. Back to some semblance of normality this week after launching the first episode of our new spin-off series, EFL Completed, an interview with Connor Howrahan that I would obviously recommend. An amazing story, an amazing career as he's moved from League 2 to League 1 to the Championship and now plays for Aston Villa in the Premier League. As for our discussion points this week, there's one key point of interest. The NTT20 Championship Team of the Year is live on the Athletic site and we want to explain, we want to justify and we want to respond to a couple of the comments on the piece uh, about some of the big omissions, shall we say. But we've also got Steve Maidley, who covers West Bromwich Albion, on the line to talk us through the West Brom players that we may or may not have included in this team. I'm Ali Maxwell. With me is George Ellick. He is, of course, the Kevin Phillips to my Niall Quinn. <laughs> All of the Athletics podcasts are completely free and ad-free versions are available to subscribers. You can sign up and now get 90 days free by going to theathletic.com forward slash EFL pod. I think it's fair to say that our Thursday morning has been dominated, George, by both the publishing and the subsequent reaction to uh, the NTT20 Championship Team of the Year, which has been published on the Athletic site this morning. And like all of these things, it has caused plenty of discussion. And it's been an absolute pleasure to see how people have reacted to it, I must say. And for the most part, as is the case in an athletic comments section, uh, things are very civilised <laughs> for the most part. But we wanted to, to, to first go through the team, but also um, explain some of our choices and uh, discuss some of the names perhaps omitted. What I would say is uh, when we were commissioned by the editors, uh, it's, it's initial excitement, isn't it, at putting together a team like this? And then quite quickly, the fear starts to set in, George. Yeah, in order to try and uh, ward off any uh, unsavoury comments, let's say, when I wrote the introduction, I made it quite tongue-in-cheek and said, normally when drafting a team of the year and in doing so, opening yourself to outrage and abuse in equal measure from fans of X who can't believe you've forgotten why and that the lone, only logical explanation for doing so must be that you hate X. Uh, it doesn't it's seem not, to have It's worked. not been too bad. It's not it been too bad. Well, yeah, I mean, I think naturally... Uh, people are a going to want their favourite players of their clubs and their teams to be selected, um, and similarly, I guess, even though you and I cover the leagues as much as we do, there are going to be certain nuances that the fans of those clubs are going to spot that, that you wouldn't necessarily know either. So, it's been largely positive. There've been a couple of um, controversial decisions, maybe from, from the two of us. Um, it's been largely Leeds fans who have uh, been been commenting, despite the fact that I wrote probably the most glowing reference to a footballer um, that's been <laughs> published in the UK in the last 10 years about um, Calvin Phillips. No, no one seems to have noticed that. And it's only the inclusion of public enemy number one, um, a, a certain former centre-back that has them talking. But I'll, I'll quickly run through the team now from top to bottom. Uh, just if you haven't read the piece, I'd go and probably read it before we talk you through it because we're not just going to repeat the stuff that, that we wrote about. Um, there are a couple of, of ground rules, a couple of house rules, uh, no more than three players from, from a certain team. Players uh, who left in January, so that's basically one player in Jared Bowen, 
uh, was not considered and the formation is a 4-2-3-1. That was set in stone. So none, no talk about a, a 4-3-3 or a 4-4-2. <laughs> uh, the team in order, we had Rafael Cabral of Reading in goal, uh, right back Matty Cash, Nathan Ferguson at left back and the two centre-backs Pontus Janssen and Ben White. The sitting midfield duo of Calvin Phillips and Romain Sawyers on the right-hand side of midfield, Jed Wallace, Matthias Pereira on the left and about Barry Eze in the middle with those two presumably switching quite a lot during games uh, and Ollie Watkins leading the line up front. If you're a Fulham fan, I'll give you just a couple of seconds to pick up your phone off the floor before we continue <laughs> to go through it. But yeah, I think, Ali, it's fair to say that Watkins over... Um, I mean, we'll, we'll go through it from the top, but Watkins over uh, Mitrovic and the inclusion of Pontus Janssen and maybe as well Nathan Ferguson seem to be the three um, points of contention. Yeah, I think so. I think so. The, the, the Watkins-Mitrovic conundrum really was, was something that we could have just kept going back and forth until we were red in the face. I, I think it's more almost of a debate about how you set out teams of the season. And because these things, especially when they are unofficial, are completely arbitrary and hugely subjective, um, you know, some people are more interested in crowbarring uh, 11 of the best players together and not worrying so much about how much sense it makes, I suppose, formation-wise or just on paper and how the players would mesh. Uh, so if you wanted to get the two top goal scorers in the championship, in the team, Watkins and Mitrovic, that means playing 4-4-2. We didn't want to, to have to reverse engineer eight players behind them in order to uh, in order to sort of make that work. So we, we did have to choose between them. And interestingly, before we went into it, I, I wasn't particularly sold either way. And, I, I, and, and, you know, we wanted to look a little bit deeper into things. And quite quickly... I started leaning towards Watkins and, and, and that got stronger and stronger. I mean, the, the stats are in the piece. The stats are in the piece, aren't they? But essentially what I found is that uh, while Mitrovic is a desperately terrifying prospect for any defender because of his size, because of his strength, he has that Premier League quality that is absolutely not up for debate. And he is a sensational player. He scored some big goals. Um, but what we found with Watkins is that despite before this season, having mostly played out wide and, and maybe some people thinking that he didn't have that natural goal scorer's instinct. What you find if you dig a little bit deeper, and even if you watch both of their goals back this season, you actually see a more varied attacking player in Watkins. You've got someone who whose goals are split very evenly between right foot, left foot and head. He's actually scored more headers than Mitrovic this season. That was a big uh, that was something that I discovered that I was surprised about. Eight-headed goals to Mitrovic's six. Mitro hasn't scored a single goal with his weaker foot this season. And maybe I'm overthinking this, but that, that's a that's a big mark against for me. Uh, if, if, you know, we're talking, a, we're having to pick one between them. And I think that that is something that really goes against him in terms of, of being a, a, an efficient and a varied goal scorer. So he's had plenty more shots than Watkins. He has scored one goal more, but two of them, have been penalties and certainly if you subscribe to Tom Warville's approach he is the athletics analytics guru he would always say take penalties out of total goal tallies because you know that's it's it's just a completely different goal scoring prospect and one that Watkins hasn't had uh, at his disposal so um, Mitrovic over Watkins is what a lot of people are telling us in the comments but but I, I'm really 
you know, out of all of our picks and out of all the debates that can be had, this is probably the one I'm most bullish about, I would say. And I, and I agree with you as well. I mean, there's one other comment saying that we should have played a 4-3-3 with, with Watkins out wide, and that goes against everything. Yeah. You know, Ollie Watkins has come to life as a footballer being played in that um, in that number nine role, and you cannot shuffle this around in order to stick him out wide purely because he's played. It makes no sense having wide of a three when he scored the goals he scored through the middle. And I think the other thing about Watkins as well, over Mitrovic, is he would help get the best out of Eze and Pereira and to a lesser extent Wallace. He's that player who can knit things together in the final third that Mitrovic can't. Mitrovic is that, he's the man who leads the line. He's the man that gets on the end of good work from others, but he's not somebody who necessarily drops in and can occupy those pockets of space that enable those flair players such as Eze and Pereira to get on the ball in more space that they need. There are also games that Fulham have played without Mitrovic where as a unit, even as an attacking unit, they've looked like a greater threat. So there is that question about the individual versus what he does for the team. Now, there aren't, there haven't been too many of those games, so maybe I'm picking on a small sample size there. The other thing to point out, uh, transition's a big big part of football these days and uh, counter-attacking uh, qualities is another thing that, that Watkins clearly has over Mitro with his mobility and his pace as well. So uh, Watkins over Mitrovic, there's some explanation. No doubt there are plenty who are still shaking their heads and that is the beauty of it. I, I said I was really bullish about that pick, George. I'd say I was... Um, most iffy, if you will, on the fullback picks. And partly because, to be honest with you, neither of us felt like the fullback positions are particularly deep in terms of, of strength, in terms of strong individuals this season. Yeah, I think the right back role is just a straight up shootout between Matty Cash and, and Luke Hayling. Um, yeah. I, there isn't anyone else who really comes into it in my mind. And Cash's season being transformed or con the cash converter, as you put it in the piece, um, <laughs> of, of Sabri Lamushi turning him into this flying fullback from a, from a more advanced role has been really impressive to see. And, you know, Ailing, I'm, I'm a massive fan of Ailing, and I think what he's done this season, and especially because of recency bias as well, which is something we've spoken about on the pod before, because he finished the season or, or the final few weeks of the season, he was so good. But I think that there's no way that Forest would be where they are without Cash um, being able to provide that threat down the right-hand side. And, and the amount of times he's popped up with significant moments in important times in games, namely against West Brom, uh, have really made a difference for them this season. On to the left-back. And the, the left-back position in the Championship, um, I mean, we're, we're going to talk about this in more depth in about 10 minutes' time. But... It, there isn't much depth at left back at all. You've got Stuart Dallas, who uh, hasn't played a great deal of the season there. When he has done, he's been brilliant. Um, you've got Joe Bryan, hasn't been great there. There aren't very many stand, standout left backs. And in Ferguson, we have a player who, who has been injured since the beginning of February. But before that, had such a profound effect as a footballer in such a small amount of time. Nobody knew who he was in August. And by January, you've got teams across the Premier League and into Europe after his signature. And that's for a reason. He is right-footed. He isn't a naturally left-sided player. But if we're building a team of players who we think, when fit, would be the best possible as a fit for a side, especially with, with Cash's athleticism up the right-hand side, I think Ferguson being able to slot in into that left-back role, where he's no slouch going forward at all, but he's very, very good as a def defensively as a one-on-one -on -one defender. He was initially a centre-back as well. Very comfortable on the ball. I, I think he's the best option there, personally. And... Um, and I'm not quite as bullish as you are. I mean, this was my pick, Ferguson, and I stand by it. Um, I, I don't think there's anyone who you could argue. I think Dallas would be the one you could argue, but in terms of a fit stylistically, 
I think Ferguson is, is the man who comes in here. And the fact that he's injured, has been injured for the past, past few weeks, shouldn't make a massive impact on that. Yeah, no real arguments about the inclusion of, of Ben White at centre-back, Calvin Phillips uh, in midfield, <laughs> of course, as well. You can understand why. Uh, certainly people are agreeing with Matthias Pereira and Abere Eze being part of, of that attacking unit as well. Just a couple of other sort of contentious ones. Uh, we had Pontus Janssen in at centre-back. Now, he like Ferguson, has missed a few games through injury. I think we both felt it would be harsh uh, to really count that against someone when the season itself has been stopped at the current uh, point that it has. To to, to to have a really strict appearances uh, threshold, I think would have been quite harsh. And just the way that, that Janssen, among others, Raya and Pinnock as well, take credit, uh, has improved Brentford's defensive record. And really the one thing that we kept talking about with Brentford over the last few seasons was, you know, what a pretty attacking team, uh, what a fantastic process and uh, what a wonderful recruitment department. And and this signing, Janssen at 28, I think he is, uh, for about five million quid, it, it seemed to go against uh, what they had done previously. It was a bit of a statement, actually, the amount of money we've raised through our player sales means we can now compete. We can buy some of the best players from, from other teams in the division. And of course, with Bielsa, it was a, a personality clash more than anything. Bielsa himself has said he was Leeds' best player in the championship last season. Uh, and he's had a similar impact on this Brentford side. And they are the, the second best defensive team in the league. Uh, I think it's, it's you know, the, the fact that he's next to Ben White, who replaced him at Leeds and arguably improved them as well, brought a wry smile to my face. It's a nice wrinkle about things. But there are loads of good centre-backs in the championship. And stylistically, they're all different. Uh, they play in different systems. And, you know, I, I love Janssen in this team. I think he's been absolutely excellent. There could have been a number of other names that, that also would have made sense there. Uh, and then the, the third player behind the front man, we went with Jed Wallace. And that's, you know, he, he's probably slightly put upon in the comment section because he plays for a less fashionable team in Millwall. Um, but this is a chap who, who notched 10 goals and nine assists by the end of January, which is absolutely sensational in any team, let alone one that, that doesn't actually score that many goals. Um, and, you know, that... It's easy to lean towards the players that play for the top teams and especially the most technical, the most creative players. But just having someone in our team who is, who has the pace and the energy that Wallace has, um, it, it helps to make the team more balanced. And quite aside from that, it's an astonishing individual season that he's putting together. Uh, at times, really a sort of one-man attack for, for Millwall. Um, I think that's pretty much it. I mean, the goalkeeper conundrum was there as well. We've discussed it many times. It doesn't feel like a massively deep pool of talent. Um, Bartosz Bielkowski, also of Millwall, has been mentioned in the comments. Bryce Samba, of course, of Nottingham Forest, has, has had a great season too. Uh, Rafael Cabral is just someone that certainly in the last few months has kicked on to a level that I think eclipses uh, any other uh, goalkeeper in the division. Uh, I think, George, that's more or less everything to debate. Yeah, I mean, I would just point out on the Janssen and Wallace examples, you've got to look for players who it's not as important that as a team they are successful over the course if you're looking at a player who so clearly lifts that team above what they would be without it. Wallace, Millwall without Wallace are a completely different side. They would not be two points off the playoffs. Janssen has missed 12 games this season. Of those 12 games... Brentford have only won three and kept two clean sheets. If Pontus Janssen isn't at Brentford this season, they are not come, they're not going to be in fourth position. The same, I mean, there are no arguments about Abere Eze's inclusion, obviously, but he's another one who 
without him, QPR are a totally different side. So, of course, Pablo Hernandez is a brilliant player. Of course, you know, Matthias Click is having a good season. But just because Leeds and West Brom are at the top end of the, of the, of the division doesn't necessarily mean that the players playing in those positions are better than those uh, at sides below them. But I, I mentioned West Brom. We've, we've kind of skirted the West Brom players for a reason uh, when talking through this now, because we have Steve Maidley, the, the West Brom uh, writer, joining us to talk through the three players. I mean, there, there's been some concern that Jake Livermore isn't in the team, but we could only pick three, as, as were the rules, and three were selected. So this is when we spoke to Steve. So on the back of that, we are delighted to be joined by Steve Maidley, the West Bromwich Albion reporter for The Athletic. And Steve, West Bromwich Albion may have lost top spot just before the football uh, finished uh, temporarily, but at least they can take some heart in having the maximum amount of players, three <laughs> players in the in our team of the season so far. What do you make of our selections? Yeah, I think uh, the, they're all, all all fair enough selections. I mean, I think I think West Brom fans will raise eyebrows at, at a couple of things for different reasons. I think that the, the selection of Nathan Ferguson at left back will probably get get some tongues wagging. Put, Partly because he he has played very well at left back, but he's possibly played arguably played even better when he, when he's played at right back for West Brom. Um, he's obviously not a not a natural left back, but he's done a very good a very good job there. Um, also, obviously the con- the contractual situation and the fact that he seems to be on the on the way out of uh, of West Brom. Um, r- rightly or wrongly, he's kind of persona non grata for a, a lot of West Brom fans now. But I mean, I, I picked him this week as my. West Brom young player of the season. Um, you can't argue with the impact he made in, in in a football sense in the first half of the season. Steve, we've got Ferguson at left back, as you mentioned at right back, Matty Cash. Both of those players probably not considered to be uh, naturals in those positions at the start of the season and where Lamucci gets a lot of credit for converting Cash, if you will. Uh, also, Billich. <laughs> Bilic takes a lot of credit for the emergence of Ferguson because I think I'm right in saying that while he was a very popular part of the, the youth system, uh, it really was Bilic's vision uh, in the early part of pre-season that saw him become a, a staple at fullback and, and what an emergence it was in the first few months of the season. It was. And I think if, if Nathan Ferguson goes on to have a, a, a very good career, which hope, yeah, hopefully he will, but whether it's at Crystal Palace or wherever he ends up going, uh, as a fullback, I think, Slavin Bilic can probably be seen as the man who made that career. Um, he was he was a centre back throughout most of his his career in the West Brom academy. Um, was never really viewed as a as a fullback. There were doubts over whether he was big enough and um, physically strong enough to to be a centre back, which, which I think think is why um, he wasn't really seen by many people as as being part of the first team this season. Bilic, Bilic came in and within a few days of training and had, um, had, see, had seen him. Play thought initially thought he was a central midfielder because he was so good on the on the ball. Um, uh, when he was told by Ferguson that he was a, a natural defender, Bilic immediately decided he was, he was going to be his, his right back, and um, yeah, the rest the rest is history. You mentioned, of course, that he's played right back. Um, I think he played majority of games at left back, but he's a natural right sided player, at least right footed player. But I think when Ali and I were coming up with this team, Ferguson was one player I really wanted to get in there, knowing that obviously. He's not a naturally left-sided defender. But at the same time, there aren't very many good left-backs necessarily in the Championship this season. You've got Stuart Dallas, of course, at Leeds, but he's played a fair bit of his football this season in midfield. Joe Bryan springs to mind at Fulham, but he hasn't necessarily had the, the best of seasons. But with Ferguson, it does it feels like that first 
four or five months of the season, we saw a player who not only was a revelation for West Brom, but is one of those players who very, very quickly we could be seeing playing at the top level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he ended up at left back in, in slightly kind of interesting circumstances in that Slav, in that Slavin Bilic has got a, um, a, a, a a liking for having at least at least one of his fullbacks being defensive minded first, and, and the and the opposite the opposite one being more attack, more attack minded. So had Kieran Gibbs stayed fit um, and and played at left back, it, it would probably have been the first choice attacking fullback on the left side. Then Ferguson would probably would probably have played most. Of, uh, most of his football as, as a right back. I think when Gibbs got injured, um, Bilic then wanted to get um, Darnell Furlong in, in the team, who was his kind of second choice attacking fullback, which meant that um, he wanted his left back to be defence minded. So, so instead instead of picking Connor Townsend, who would, who would have been the obvious choice at, at, at left back, who's more of an attack minded fullback, he, he switched Ferguson there. And for, Ferguson, despite being naturally right footed, did a an excellent job at left back, and if if memory serves me correctly, he actually scored actually scored that um, brilliant goal at QPR from from the left back position as well. Steve, we've got Romain Sawyer's alongside Calvin Phillips in midfield now. Just dreaming of that partnership is is something that I've been doing a lot of. But interestingly, we have had one or two comments, and I'm interested to know your stance on this. I, I think from Baggies fans pointing out that, that Livermore would be very worthy as well. So as his midfield partner uh, for West Brom, where do you stand on this? I mean, they've both sparkled this season, it's fair to say, and they both offer something a bit different. I think for, from George and I uh, and, and my perspective, Sawyers is just accuracy in passing and the way that he helps the team to build attack and get the ball into the feet of the likes of Pereira and, and others at the top end of the pitch. That was what really swung it for us. Yeah, well, when I said that, that a, a, a couple of things would probably, would probably get raise a few eyebrows among West Brom fans, the, se- the second one I was alluding to was was the omission of Livermore. So, and I guess by extension, that would be the the inclusion of Sawyer's. I think don't get me wrong, Romain Sawyer has, has had an excellent season, uh, especially the f- the first three or four months of the season. He, he, he did he did run games. Um, his passing accuracy was was outstanding. He, he went forward very quickly and. and um, Got West Brom on, on, on the front foot a, a lot. Um, I, I, th- I think it's fair to say in the um, the two or three months before the before the season was halted, um, he went off the boil a, li- a little bit. He was still yeah he, he was still doing okay, but maybe um, he, he got caught a, a little bit um, playing a few too many safe passes, and then maybe trying a little a little bit too much. Whereas at, earlier in the season, his real strength was what one two touch see. Seeing passes early, playing them early, getting West Brom forward early. I think most, I think most West Brom fans would would look at the season and would say that if you were going to pick one of their central midfielders for your team of the year, it would be Livermore. Livermore has been um, very steady and, and, and consistent from the start, and then since Christmas um, has really, really come into his own and has been a real driving force in the West Brom midfield. So, if, if the, I think if you were picking one of them in isolation. I think most West Brom fans and probably me would have gone for Livermore. But but having said that, if you're picking Calvin Phillips, which is probably a no, a no-brainer um, based based on what I've seen from, in the championship this season, and you want a partner for him, then probably Sawyer's would 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 be the logical selection because they would complement each other possibly more than Phillips and Livermore. 
Harry's sponsors Going Up, Going Down, which is a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And, and now, by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close and comfortable shave. A weighted ergonomic handle, five precision-engineered blades, a rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. Now, as a listener of Going Up, Going Down, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for just £3.95. Support this podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash going up right now. That's harrys.com forward slash going up. We tried to build a team that not only would work on paper, but would also work on the pitch. And, and as good as Jake Livermore has been, uh, Calvin Phillips was the first name on his team sheet and Sawyer's seemed to us like the perfect partner for him. We've had some comments asking us why we couldn't play 4-4-2 uh, because obviously we've left, we've left Mitrovic out. But the three players in behind, Ollie Watkins, we thought were, were pretty much, in terms of building a team that's going to work, we thought were, were very important. Jed Wallace, Aberi Eze, and then of course, Matthias Pereira. I mean, he's a player that, that I've fallen for. Ali has certainly fallen for. <laughs> and uh, I, I just going back to when he first signed for the club, because it wasn't necessarily a transfer that... not I, I wasn't so aware of it when it happened to suggest that he was going to be one of the top two or three players in the league. What was the feeling like with fans at the club, with those involved when he signed on loan in the summer? I think there was some excitement, um, partly partly for, for the reason that, that, that you've alluded, alluded to, that fans didn't really know a lot about him. Um, but you, know, you, you, you looked at the clubs he'd, be, he'd been at, and there was, there was it was obvious that he must have some kind of pedigree. I think I think fans were excited to see, to see what he would what he would bring, and then when they saw him, they kind of fell in love with him, as, <laughs> kind of as, as you as you guys did. Um, his change, his, his position has been interesting actually this this season. In that he he started off playing out wide, which I think is, is where he played most of his football in Germany last year um, on on loan. Um, he, he, he got he got switched into a number ten position when um, Filip Kravinovic got le- got left out um, as a, as a number ten. And then when when West Brom went through their tricky spell um, in the in the middle of the season, um, teams um, in fact Calvin Phillips w- was was the the prime example of it. Teams kind of worked out had had to stop Pereira a little bit in the number ten role. Um, he then got that three match suspension um, after the incident against Forest, and he came back um, kind of playing as a playing as a wide player. West Brom changed changed formation, went to went to a four three three, which actually brought out the bet in Livermore as well because Livermore was given a more um, a more advanced role, more license to get forward. It, it, it meant that Pereira was moved back out, out wide on the right, but he, he was a very different kind of wide right player to how he had been. Early in the season, when he was an out-and-out right winger, and Kravinovic was was playing as a ten, he kind of in recent weeks, well, recent weeks in footballing terms, um, he um, he's played wide right, but he's really been given license to, to drift in. Um, so he's taken up the, num- the the number ten positions a lot of the time without playing as an orthodox number ten, which I think has has made him really really hard to hard to mark. And 
some of the, some of the things he does, some of the footwork and some of the tricks, um, you know, it's what it's what you pay your money to go to watch. And it, it's it's the kind of play that West Brom fans haven't really had in in recent seasons. I think by virtue of being in the Premier League and, and battling to stay up, they've had a lot more workmanlike type players. So to have a player of that kind of style in their team has just been fantastic. Steve, I, I certainly really fell for him uh, when we were at the game against Leeds at Ellen Road. And despite the fact that West Brom lost that game, it was clear in their performance and the way that they went toe-to-toe really with Leeds, certainly in terms of possession in a way that no other team uh, had done or, or, or would do subsequently. Um, Pereira's performance stood out to me, not just with what he was able to do each time he got the ball, but but actually with his work rate. And something that I've alluded to in the piece is that, you know, the stereotypical Brazilian number 10, uh, and let's not forget that um, certain people at, at former clubs have highlighted supposed attitude problems as well. He actually bucks that trend for me and goes against a lot of those stereotypes. I mean, not only that performance out of possession against Leeds, but you know, I'll never forget watching that game at Millwall in the midst of Storm Dennis. You know, that's the sort of game that people would say, wow, Pereira's not going to love going to the den in this weather. And he was the standout player. So, it, you know, that was a big one for me as, as much as, as he is balletic on the ball and creative as well. It, it was kind of the things that, that you didn't necessarily expect from him that stood out to me. Is that something that you've noticed too? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, he's, he's never... He's never going to be a, a, a defensive player. He's, you know, he's, a, he's not a natural tackler. He's, he's going to, always, always going to have to work at the defensive side of his game. But, but what, he, what he's never been found wanting for this, this season is work rate. He's, he's chased back. He's done his best, best to get into the right positions to help, help the team keep, keep a shape. So even, even when he's not making tackles and, re, and really kind of um, blood and thunder, He's getting through his work, and in terms of the attitude, you're right. I mean, I wrote a piece earlier on this season about him, and there clearly have been problems at previous clubs. He clearly has the potential to to fall out with with coaches, and I suppose one of his former coaches in Germany, who said quite quite kind of nicely that when when he doesn't understand what the coach is asking him to do, he he can have a problem with that. So I think in that respect, he's found the perfect, uh, perfect guy in Slavin Bilic, whose man management is, is clearly excellent. And he's, he's quite a kind of hands off, um, soft touch type, type man manager, who I think would very carefully explain to Pereira what he's asking him to do and why he's asking him to do it. And Pereira clearly kind of responds to that kind of management. This athletic podcast is brought to you in association with Stitch Fix, which is an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well. With spring on the horizon, it's time to get your wardrobe sorted for the warmer weather and Stitch Fix will help you with that. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic and you fill in a style quiz which tells Stitch Fix all about your personal style, budget, size and shape and your clothing needs and wants. At that stage, a personal stylist will then send you five items of clothing, each handpicked especially for you from a selection of 100 brands, including established names and -and up-and-coming designers. What you do then is, once you've received the clothes, you try on everything at home and mix them with other items in your wardrobe. At that stage, you pay for what you love and what you want to keep, and you send back the rest. For the stylist's time, you pay a charge of just £10, which is deducted from the cost of anything you decide to buy. So 
it's key to remember that you try before you buy. Delivery and returns are both free both ways, and you don't need a subscription to sign up. So give it a go today. Get started with Stitch Fix and support our podcast in doing so by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic right now. That's S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X dot co dot UK forward slash athletic. One more player that we just want to mention before we let you go is Semi Ajayi, a player that a fair few West Brom fans have already got in touch with uh, outrage that he's not in the team. And, and I think it's fair to say as well that Ali and I are, are big fans of his. And, and I'm sure if we're doing this team in a year's time, if West Brom aren't, of course, in the Premier League, then he'll probably be in there. How much of a revelation has he been since he came in for just, what, £1.5 million? Very much so. Uh, and especially in the, in the early part of the season, he, he, he was excellent. Um, he's, he's, he's a young centre-half who, take, who takes a chance. So occasionally... He's going to have games or moments in in, in games where um, things don't come off for him, uh, and he get he gets caught out because he does. He's, he's a big, physical, quick, um, powerful centre half who who tries to win everything, and and will will quite often try to get um, around a defender to, to to nick the ball. And sometimes you can end up, end up looking looking a bit daft because the defender will t- will turn you. But he's been excellent in in two respects, um, particularly one that he. He likes to play out from the back, and that's what Slavin Bilic. I mean, that's that's the kind of player Slavin Bilic was himself, and that's the the way he wants West Brom to play. Um, so Ajayi starts starts off quite, quite a lot of West Brom's attacks, and also his pace um, at centre half has, has allowed West Brom to play higher up the field with him than they could have done without 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 him, which has helped them compact the play and helped out the mid midfield a lot. Um, he's been a really crucial player, and they really didn't notice him when he's not there. Well, there's plenty of debate with any team of the season. With Steve, who covers West Bromwich Albion for The Athletic, the debate extends even to which West Brom players out of the three that we've selected should be in the side. Steve, thank you so much for for all your insight, telling us a bit more about the players that we've picked and maybe some of the ones that we've maybe overlooked. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much to Steve Maidley there, um, joining us to talk about the West Brom players we chose in our championship team of the season. Make sure you check out all of Steve's work uh, around West Brom on The Athletic and please do read our article. There might be a couple of other editions. I'll leave you to guess what they may be, but there might be a couple more coming out in the next week or so, which we can talk about next week. But on now to um, the part we've all been waiting for after last week's interview with Connor Harrahan. We haven't had an EFL Rewind for two weeks and I am having withdrawal symptoms. I'm missing that more than kicking a football around in the park, than meeting my mates in the pub for a drink. This is what I'm missing. So I'm so happy that it's finally coming to an end and I get to sit back and listen to Ali Maxwell regale me with some football nostalgia. Ah, and it's the best part of my week as well or every other week or whenever it is to to sit down there's a huge list of potential EFL rewinds but once you get really stuck in with the research I genuinely think there's nothing better and maybe that reflects on me being uh, an absolute uber nerd I don't know but that's what I'm into and I make no bones about it look uh, there are there are so many different ways you can go with an EFL Rewind. Uh, last week, we did something a bit different with the interview uh, of first in the series of EFL Completed with Connor Harrahan, as you mentioned. Uh, I had thought if we were going to do an, a normal episode that it would have been nice to tell the story of Raddy Antic, who sadly passed away last week uh, and was 
a famous, famous football manager, especially in Spain, where he managed Atletico Madrid, Barcelona and Real Madrid. But the most exciting thing from our perspective about Radiantic was the three years he spent with Luton Town in the 80s. And I really would uh, recommend having a look at some of the stories about Antic and Luton in the 80s. Uh, it's fascinating. And he scored maybe their most important ever goal as well. So uh, that's one that didn't quite make it because this week uh, I'm going for a, well, my favourite genre, basically. Incredible players pitching up in the EFL. That's uh, that's what it's all about. And there's a few different types. You've had the older guys. Uh, I've talked about Prozanetsky. Uh, Gascoigne, of course, could be done in the future. Edgar Davids with Barnet, of course. How have we not done that yet? Uh, a few quality players when they were younger as well. Of course, loads of the England team starred in the EFL in their youth. Gilfie Sigurdsson uh, going on loan to Shrewsbury. That's a story for another day. Um, <laughs> but not many players, I think, that were considered absolute wonder kids mere months before playing in the EFL. So here today is the story of Giovanni Dos Santos, one of Mexico's greatest ever players and briefly considered a rival to Leo Messi's starting berth at Barcelona, cutting in off the right wing. But this is about Dos Santos during that period where he was considered a wonder kid, playing in the second tier of the English game in the championship aged 19. Uh, he's a Mexican international, of course, over 100 caps, but the son of a Brazilian footballer, Zizinho, who played most of his career in Mexico, which is why Gio Dos Santos played for Mexico. He burst onto the scene at the under-17 World Championships with Mexico winning the silver ball as they won the title. That's the second best player behind Anderson of Brazil at the time, another classic mid-noughties wonder kid. Um, he joined La Masia, he joined Barcelona, he makes his debut for them. There's a huge amount of hype. I'm sure many people listening will remember this. He kind of gets taken under Ronaldinho's wing. Whether that's a good thing or not, it kind of remains to be seen. <laughs> and he scores a hat-trick for Barcelona in La Liga on the last day of the 2007-2008 season. And the hype goes into overdrive. I can remember personally at this time, I think I'm probably, what, 15 years old. And I was fully obsessed with him, uh, thinking that he was going to be the next big thing, better than Messi, all of that sort of stuff. I spent all my free time watching grainy highlights on a new website called The YouTube. Um, <laughs> sadly, Messi was kind of established already and he couldn't break through. And he actually moves to Spurs, age 19. He's still in the midst of the hype and it was considered something of a coup. Juan de Ramos, the Spurs manager, persuaded Dos Santos that more game time could be gained in the English league than by competing for a place in that star-studded Barcelona team. Sadly for Gio, and I suppose for Juan de, uh, it was Spurs' worst ever start to a league campaign. You might remember Spurs had two points after eight league games. So out went Juan de, and in came Harry Redknapp. I think we all know... Uh, what Redknapp's tactical style is based upon. And it was 4-4-2 that he went for. Now, that did not fit Gio Dos Santos's game. I think it's fair to say the personality uh, wasn't necessarily something that meshed too well either. Dos Santos loved nightclubs, thanks to Ronaldinho, no doubt. And he was often late for training. And it's fair to say Ari didn't fancy him whatsoever. So where do you send your high-maintenance Mexican prodigy that doesn't fit into your 4-4-2 system? You send him to Suffolk. 
You send him on loan <laughs> to Ipswich Town of the Championship. Now, Jim Magilton's the manager, but John Gorman, his assistant, gets credited with pulling the strings here, using his contacts book. He'd previously been assistant at Spurs and England with Glenn Hoddle, and he's the one that manages to convince Spurs to let Dos Santos move to Ipswich in March. There's nine games to go. You wonder how keen Dos Santos was himself for the move. Here's some reporting at the time from Jacob Steinberg in The Guardian. He writes, one of Juan de Ramos's most heralded summer signings for Spurs, Giovanni Dos Santos, has joined Ipswich on loan. An embarrassing step for a player who engendered so much optimism upon his arrival. Current Spurs manager Redknapp has been trying to disassociate himself from the work of Ramos for as long as he's been in the job. And this move could be interpreted as such. A move to the championship will be a humiliating descent for the Mexican striker. Uh, So... Strong words already being written. Uh, a lovely tidbit at the end of that article. Meanwhile, another young Tottenham midfielder, Adele Tarapt, has joined QPR on loan <laughs> until the summer. And we wow. all know how that ended up. So some context uh, with Ipswich at this stage. They were just outside the playoffs. I think when he joined, they were five points off. But expectation had been really high. The season before, they'd missed out on the playoffs by one point. Marcus Evans had taken charge halfway through that previous season. And... Surprisingly, given what we now uh, recognise as his as his style as an owner, he'd flashed quite a lot of cash at it. Uh, in 08-09, they were big spenders again, and, and it was certainly seen as playoffs being the bare minimum. So they've got some work to do. The recruitment has been kind of eye-catching, but maybe a bit imbalanced. You've got Gareth McCauley and Luciano Ciavelli coming in for seven-figure fees. Kevin Lisby and John Stead joining for, for big fees. And then there's Ivan Campo somehow as well, who's playing at the back. I must say, watching the highlights, with respect to a, a wonderful career, he is an absolute disaster at this stage. <laughs> uh, so it's an imbalanced squad, a lot of strength through the middle of the team. Uh, up front, you've got Stead, Pablo Cunhago, Jonathan Walters, Kevin Lisby, uh, and Danny Haynes as well. So it's kind of an interesting time. They're just outside the playoffs. I asked a, an Ipswich fan that we know, Joe Fares, what it was like to sign Dos Santos on loan. He said the signing came out of absolutely nowhere. And as I remember, I was in the pub after work on a Friday afternoon. It was suddenly announced. Can't remember there being any build-up, any rumours whatsoever. We were playing the Reading the next day. I wasn't planning on going, but three or four of us in the pub decided we just had to. In the end, Gio only got 20 minutes off the bench, but they won 1-0 from a John Stead overhead kick. So certainly worth the trip <laughs> to the Madstad. The Tuesday following, he gets his first start at home to Burnley. And you can tell watching the highlights that the fans are just losing their mind with excitement because there's a moment where he makes a small effort to make what I can only describe as a a sort of half tackle. And because he appears to actually be trying out of possession, the fans give him this rapturous applause, way more than is necessary, especially given he doesn't actually win the ball. And hilariously, Burnley score about 10 seconds later to go one and up. But with 15 minutes to go, we see our first glimpse of Dos Santos. Stead. Now Giovanni. That extra yard of pace and a really good finish. Another top draw goal and this time by the man on his own, David. Just ran, ran and shot. 
It's something that we would recognise Dos Santos doing throughout his career. It's exactly what he was hyped up to do, cutting in off the right-hand side from a John Stead-chested pass, of course, rather than a, a Ronaldinho through ball. And uh, it's just it's just wonderful to see a player uh, score a goal like that at second-tier level. Sadly, there's no incredible happy ending here. Uh, they don't punch their way into the playoffs. Dos Santos scores a late penalty to draw at Bristol City soon afterwards, and I love that he rocks up and he's instantly on pens. Um, then Ipswich lose two games in a row, which puts them well away from the playoffs. Unfortunately, Jim Magilton's grip on things have completely gone, and he leaves the club with two games to go. But before that, he gets one more game, and it's at home to Norwich, the old farm derby. And at this time, we're talking about relegation-threatened Norwich. Ipswich, if they were to beat them, they would send them back into the relegation zone. And one of your former uh, EFL rewinds, George, I think is uh, just before this period of Norwich's life, where we end up seeing Paul Lambert uh, take charge, etc. But little Gio has a taste for the big occasion. With an equally wonderful pass, he ends up setting himself up with his chance from the spot. And so it's Gio De Santos who scored against Bristol City, against David Marshall. And now gone. This could do it. It does. Gio De Santos sends Marshall the wrong way. Ipswich regain the lead. It's 2-1. The game ends 3-2 in sunny Suffolk. Ipswich beat Norwich. Their playoff dreams are more or less gone, but this puts Norwich into the relegation zone and sees them relegated just weeks later. I think we can all agree it's an amazing result. It's an amazing experience for Ipswich fans anyway, but certainly it has grown over the years because that's the last time, remarkably, that Ipswich beat Norwich. 12 games between the two sides since then. 12 Old Farm derbies and Ipswich haven't won a single one. Of course, there's now two divisions between the teams as well with Norwich in the Premier League. But that victory helped to relegate their rivals and the legend has grown ever stronger with each year. Gio Dos Santos very much a big part of that. On final day, with the season petering out, with Roy Keane now having taken charge, the sun is shining down on Portman Road. It's a sea of blue. And Gio Dos Santos in this game against Coventry leaves one final gift for Tractor Boys fans. Gain a good ball. This is Giovanni. Ipswich using the flanks really well. Ben Turner at the moment getting no change out of him. And Giovanni goes all the way. And that's a really sweet goal. How oh, they have come to admire this man. And you can see why. Really good finish. And so off he went. Just three months later, this player, Dos Santos, was named player of the tournament in the Gold Cup as Mexico won it. He's got three Gold Cups to his name. He's got that player of the tournament trophy. He scored goal of the tournament, a famous goal against USA in a, in a separate final. He's also got 106 caps for Mexico. He's an Olympic gold medalist. It's fair to say that the hype when he was 17, 18 never quite came to pass at the very top level. But this is still a fantastic footballer who spent eight games playing in the championship, scored four goals, two of them from the spot, gave Ipswich fans some amazing memories. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about whether he's their best loney ever. 
I think some people think so. Just because of the whole atmosphere around his signing and his quality on the ball, that natural talent. Others say that because he didn't have any real impact on the club or its history in terms of, of tangible results and a promotion, let's say, or survival, that he doesn't count and he was only there for eight games. One thing is for sure... Ipswich fans are fairly clear that this player shouldn't have ever played for them. When he got on the ball, he was absolutely electric. One of those elite dribblers that can't be tackled cleanly, but also on show watching the highlights back. A really impressive vision and, and range of passing when cutting in from the right. So this is the story of someone that I was absolutely obsessed with when I was younger and who made a real impact on Ipswich Town fans. Gio Dos Santos and his loan with Ipswich in 08 09. <laughs> Thanks, Ali. What a brilliant addition to the EFL Rewind series. We hope that you've enjoyed the podcast today. Thank you very much to Steve Maidley for joining us and make sure you tune in next week. All of our podcasts are completely free and ad-free versions are available to subscribers. You can sign up now and get 90 days free by going to theathletic.com forward slash EFL pod. So make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Make sure you read all the brilliant EFR writing on there and we'll see you again this time next week. <laughs>